This is the Religion Unplugged podcast, an interview series about the impact of religion in public life and around the world. This week, we're joined by actor Rain Wilson, best known for his role as Dwight in The Office. He's also a practicing Baha'i. We talked about ways the Baha'i faith teaches people to heal division in local communities. Welcome to the Religion Unplugged podcast. I'm Megan Clark, the managing editor of Religion Unplugged, and here with me is our intern, Maddie Townsend. Maddie wanted to profile a religious celebrity and has been looking at the Baha'i faith, so she thought, why not Rain Wilson, who's known for playing Dwight on The Office, of course, but is also a practicing Baha'i. So today, we have with us Rain Wilson. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Nice to be speaking with you. I think the first very obvious question is, um, what is the Baha'i religion? Because most of our audience is probably not familiar at all with this religion. So can you give us a brief overview of what is Baha'i? Sure. What is Baha'i? Okay. So um, in the Baha'i faith, uh, there is one God. And uh, this one God, this all-loving providence, this all-knowing, all-seeing, wise beyond measure, beyond time and space, creator, entity, uh, we can get into that later, um, wants to educate humanity here on planet Earth, spiritually. So how does this creator do that? Well, every couple hundred years or a couple thousand years or something like that, this divine creator sends down specially anointed, specially appointed divine teachers. Um, uh, you could call them prophets. Some call them, you know, messengers. In the Baha'i uh, vocabulary, they're referred to often as manifestations. They're manifestations of God. So these special teachers um, you've heard of, and many of your readers have heard of, uh, going way back to like Zoroaster, Abraham, Krishna, some of the super early ones, then the Buddha, um, Moses, uh, Jesus, Muhammad, and Baha'is are followers of what we believe to be the most recent in this lineage of holy teachers, uh, the Bab and Baha'u'llah, who were two um, extraordinary men who lived in Persia, uh, now Iran, in the mid-19th century. Um, The Bab lost his life. He was martyred. He was killed by the authorities in a similar fashion as Jesus was. Um, And Baha'u'llah was banished and spent his entire life in, in prison, he followed the Bob. The Bob, in some ways, could be comparative to um, John the Baptist, uh, a forerunner who talked of uh, someone greater than he uh, with a even more powerful spiritual message. So Baha'is are followers of Baha'u'llah, mainly. Um, you know, if there's people who are like, well, the Baha'i faith sounds like Unitarianism. You kind of believe in everything. You believe in all these faiths. It's like, well, no, Baha'is are followers of Baha'u'llah. We believe that Baha'u'llah is the manifestation of God, the messenger, the divine teacher for this day and age. We're followers of Baha'u'llah, but we also 
follow and revere uh, Muhammad, the Quran, the Bible, uh, Jesus, the writings of the Buddha, etc. Um, we don't follow, you know, the rites and rituals of those faiths, but the essential core teachings of those divine teachers we're into. There's about five or six million Baha'is around the globe. It's the second most widespread of the world's religions. Uh, next to Christianity, it's pretty much anywhere you go in the globe. There's Baha'is. May not be a very large community, but if you go to, you know, Mongolia or Cambodia or New Zealand or wherever, um, there's a thriving Baha'i population. And Baha'u'llah's teachings um, are very, uh, I think, what you would call like progressive social teachings that are here for the unification of humankind. And this is why I'm a Baha'i right now, especially in this current political climate, that Baha'u'llah's message is one of love and unity and bringing people together. So it's elimination of racial prejudice, the equality of women and men, um, uh, the elimination of extremes of wealth and poverty, um, universal education, the harmony of science and religion, uh, that these two forces uh, are actually in, in unity, working in harmony. They don't need to be at odds with each other. And uh, there's many, many more teachings. Baha'u'llah spent his whole life in prison. I won't go into the history, but he wrote hundreds of books and tablets and prayers and letters and um, what have you, mystical writings, uh, meditations, koans, you name it. They're, they fill hundreds of books and um, that's basically it. Great. There's so much in there. <laughs> yeah. So we have a lot of questions. Okay. Um, so tell us about your spiritual journey to Baha'i and what did your conversion look like? I know you grew up in the faith, but um, how did you kind of come back to uh, being a member of the Baha'i faith? Yeah. Um, Great question. So yes, I grew up in the Baha'i faith. Um, my parents were Baha'is. They became Baha'is in the early mid '60s, and then oodles of people became Baha'is in the late '60s and early '70s. So it went from a religion that had—I'm uh, kind of speculating here—but maybe thirty or forty thousand believers, and then that kind of quadrupled over seven years. So just like really exploded. There were a lot of Baha'i actors and celebrities and artists and whatnot. Um, so I grew up, uh, I was born in 66, so late 70s, early, I mean, excuse me, late 60s, early 70s. Um, and it was great. You know, my parents had wonderful, thriving Baha'i talks at their house. But, you know, when you go to a Baha'i talk, it's not, it's not to like, oh, we're going to try and convert you to the Baha'i faith. Um, although we're certainly teach people about the Baha'i faith, but the goal isn't kind of like conversions. We talk about Buddhism, we talk about the Bible and, and spiritual ideas and life's big questions, um, which kind of led me later on to found the media company Soul Pancake, which was based around this exploration of life's biggest possible questions. And um, it was fabulous, very racially diverse, um, actually the second largest religion in uh, South Carolina is Baha'i. Um, many of the African-American believers and friends during that time period were very attracted to this message of, of unity, harmony, of, of, and, and kind of 
for lack of a better phrase, social justice, in, in, in not in all of its connotations, but in, in the essence of what it means, finding more justice in society um, and elimination, eliminating prejudice. So um, I grew up in that milieu, and then when I started acting, I went off to New York to go to acting school, and I just, like a lot of young people, I just jettisoned anything and everything having to do with religion. So I didn't want to, um, uh, I didn't want to be held down by morality. I didn't want the religion of my parents. I just wanted to move to New York City and do whatever I wanted to do as a young bohemian artist, you know, on my path. Uh, so of course, got in a lot of trouble doing that. You, you know, um, you can read the tea leaves. And, but basically, uh, and there's a much longer version of this, but to just to boil it down, and I, I did, I'll do a little plug for my book, The Bassoon King. It's back here somewhere where I kind of go more in depth and into some of these stories, my memoir. But basically, I found myself kind of lonely and unhappy, uh, depressed and a little lost. And I was living my dream. I was an actor in New York City. I was working in the theater. Um, this was beyond my wildest dreams as a suburban boy from Seattle, Washington. And... Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater when I jettisoned the Baha'i faith or jettisoned religious faith completely. So I went on a quest, really. I went on a spiritual journey. Um, I read the world's holy texts and um, went to many gatherings and meetings and just spoke to people and studied and learned and then eventually came back to reading the central texts of the Baha'i faith and kind of had that kind of second conversion in my heart um, in my, I guess it was my mid-late 30s and came back to the Baha'i faith then in the, in the late 90s. You talk a lot about Baha'i, um, not the Baha'i teachings, but it sounds like the talks are about several different religions and drawing from sounds like some of the best of every different major world religion. It's almost like studying comparative religion. Can you talk a little bit about what are the um, talks like? Are those more academic? You said they're not trying to convert anyone. They're open to the public. And I know you've mentioned before having belief nights at home. What does that look like? Um, for someone who's coming from outside, how do they uh, go to one of those talks? Or uh, do outsiders who don't believe in all of the teachings come to some of those talks and have religious dialogue? Yeah, so great question. And, you know, all of the above. So a, a talk in the Baha'i faith where you're speaking about an aspect of the religion is called a fireside. Uh, that's just what we call it. We call it a fireside. It's, think of a fireside talk. It's informal. It's, it's warm. It's homey. It's um, uh, conversational. It's taking the other person's kind of beliefs into you know, account. And there's all kinds of different Baha'i talks and gatherings. And there are some where it's straight up like, Hey, do you want to know what the Baha'i faith is? Well, you can tell you what the Baha'i faith is. Sometimes it'll be about, let's talk about the intersection of science and religion, and we'll offer a Baha'i perspective on 
this teaching. Um, sometimes it's kind of like, let's just have an elevated discussion with people who are interested in spiritual topics and themes. Um, and that can incorporate writings and teachings from lots of different faiths. And we encourage people to, you know, bring quotes or share their ideas. And it's just kind of like a big kind of heady conversation, not academic. Um, and we also, Baha'is also sponsor a lot of devotional gatherings because that's one thing that we do believe unifies people is that no matter what your belief system, we can come together and pray. And those are really beautiful. And we have Jews and born-again Christians and agnostics who bring a poem, you know, let's say, and, you know, we'll just do a real simple, like, meditation sometimes and read some Baha'i prayers and some stuff from the Bible or the Quran and, um, but kind of sit together, you know, Quaker style to share that, the beauty and power and sacredness, really, of, uh, of praying together. Um, it's really interesting. In, in contemporary America, you've got the people in the blue states meditate but don't pray, and people in the red states pray and don't meditate. So even there you have this kind of divide uh, between the two halves. So I find that very interesting. So Baha'is pray and meditate. Like we'll meditate, and we also pray because we believe in God and the power of prayer to, and you can pray just from your heart or you can, you know, have a Baha'i, prayer book that has actual prayers. Um, so those are all kinds of ways that Baha'is gather and have these discussions. How is your daily life different as a Baha'i and what are like your practices and rituals that come with being a Baha'i? Uh, great question. So for me as a Baha'i, I wake up in the morning and I read, uh, Baha'is are told or asked encouraged to read some of the Baha'i holy writings in the morning and some and in the evening. That can be as simple as a sentence. So I wake up in the morning, I read a, usually a writing of Baha'u'llah, um, sometimes of the Bab, sometimes of Baha'u'llah's eldest son named Abdu'l-Baha. I, I would say five days a week, I um, then pray and meditate in the morning. Uh, it's really pretty simple. Um, Baha'is are also asked to, uh, we say a phrase, Allahu Abha, 95 times a day. That just means God is all glorious. So it's kind of a meditation chant. And I'll say prayers, and I'll just be in stillness and have a med I have a personal meditation practice. I uh, would love it to be seven days a week, but in all honesty, it's five or six. Um, then uh, Baha'is everywhere say a prayer, a special prayer, called the obligatory prayer, where we we really are asked to say this every day. There are several options, but there's a short option, and the, oblig the daily obligatory prayer goes like this. It's very short, don't worry. I bear witness, O oh my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might to my poverty and to thy wealth, that there is none other God but thee, the help in peril, the self-subsisting. So one thing that's really beautiful about this uh, prayer is, um, thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee, is the meaning of life. 
is contained in this one sentence of this prayer. There's two sentences in the entire prayer. I've been created to know and worship God. That's it. Well, you might think you know what that means when you hear that. Oh, know and worship God. Like, oh, I know, you know, I read holy writings about God, and then I say a bunch of prayers to this God. But to know and worship God, you know, if you want to kind of really dissect that, it starts to get very complicated. You know, it's like, you know, in the Quran, uh, the prophet Muhammad says, to know God is to know thyself. So in knowing myself better, I know God better. Because there is part of God in me and, and in Maddie and in Megan and in every listener out there. So we are contain, we contain the, the qualities of God, the virtues of God, kindness, humility, compassion, honesty, etc. Um, and we struggle with those. <laughs> we struggle and fail sometimes, and sometimes we do better. So service to other people is in the Baha'i faith the highest form of worship. Um, work in the spirit of service is worship in the eyes of God, we are told by Baha'u'llah. Um, the creation of art is a worship of God. Um, that's a, a, a really beautiful thing. So so you ask, and how does being a Baha'i affect my day? And basically, if I know my meaning of life, if I know my purpose to know and worship God, and if to know and worship God is that very multicolored, multifaceted, multivariegated kind of exploration of what it is to be a human being, to be kind, to serve, to create beauty, to bring people together, um, to, to love and appreciate nature, that's all part of it. Um, I also think that uh, the Baha'i faith works in, and I think any spiritual practice, most every spiritual practice works in two on two paths. One is we want to make ourselves a better person. So we pray and meditate. We want more serenity. We want more tranquility in our lives. We want more peace, more happiness, more joy. Um, we want to be better people. That's one part of it. But there's another part of every spiritual practice, which is can we make the world a better place? Um how can my spiritual tools help make the world better? And this is a really important part of the Baha'i faith, is that wherever you go, you see Baha'is working in, in their communities to try and actively make the world a better place. So it's not just about personal salvation. It's not just like the Baha'is don't really believe in heaven and hell in the same way that Christians do, but it's not about like, oh, I believe in Baha'u'llah, therefore I am saved. It's really like, I believe in Baha'u'llah, so I have to work my ass off to try and make myself a better person and make the world a better place. Um, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's that's it in a nutshell. And just that acknowledgement, uh, Maddie, that I am a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm, I'm stuck in this weird, fleshy Rain Wilson body for, you know, 80 or 90 or 100 years or something like that. And then the body goes to the wayside and then my consciousness, soul, spirit, uh, whatever it is, continues on its infinite spiritual journey. And so a daily awareness that I am a spiritual being. Yeah. You alluded a little bit to this about, you know, the reckoning we've had with racism, the polarization. Um, what are some of the spiritual tools that Baha'i teaches 
to address racism or, you know, at a micro level, something that's actually achievable by a small, by a community. Um, mm. What are some of those spiritual mm. tools to help someone fight racism within themselves, within their community, to create a better culture of unity across the political divide um, and try to bring some healing to their circle, maybe on social media even uh, during the pandemic? Right. That's a great question. Um, I don't know how specifically I can get into that. It's something I would actually like to research more because it's such a, it's a, really perfectly posited question. It's fine to talk about healing racism as a kind of a pie in the sky thing. It's like, so what do you actually do? So in terms of actual spiritual teachings in the Baha'i faith, you know, we're taught that we're all children of God. Women and men are the same station, which might sound obvious today, but 100, 150 years ago, women were considered lesser beings, you know? Um, and that people of all different races are all equal in the sight of God and that God is inherent in all of these people. So we see the divine in everyone. Um, there's many teachings in the Baha'i faith that specifically um, aim to heal racism. Uh, ones that are about like making sure that you're putting yourself out to, um, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but there are many teachings about putting yourself out of your comfort zone, essentially, and interacting with and being with and getting to know and asking for the stories from people of different racial backgrounds than yourself. Well, that's a really easy one. And it might sound kind of obvious, but we don't do it. We just don't do it. White people hang with white people. Black people hang with black people. You know, Latinos hang with Latinos. Um, it's very segregated. It's very rare that people are really mixing it up um, and Baha'is are encouraged to mix it up as much as possible and to develop deep and lasting friendships with people of other races. And, you know, so there, it works on a number of levels. That's the friendship level. We talked about the spiritual level. And then on the social and political level, um, making sure that the laws and um, institutions uh, contain these same spiritual principles of equality, you know, love, mutual respect, and a lot of our institutions fall way, way short of that. So Baha'is are very involved in, um, you know, looking at institutionalized racism, which is uh, so insidious um, and grotesque in so many ways and has been around for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. It's going to take a long time to really stamp that out. There's also Baha'i teachings about making sure that voices are heard of, of people of uh, of people of color and that they're promoted, listened to, respected. And there's a there's a great letter by the grandson of Abdul Baha, so the great grandson of Baha'u'llah, Shoghi Effendi, who was kind of the leader of the Baha'i faith for a long time. It's called Advent of Divine Justice. And in this there are he diagnoses the racial problem in the United States. And he gives a solution to both the African-American and the white American uh, followers in this letter. And the, 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 the part of the white, and I'm going to terribly paraphrase this, is to for white people to watch essentially their privilege and to check their privilege. And he was writing about this in the 1920s. 
um, the, our, 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 our arrogance, our entitlement, uh, the way we hold forth as white dudes, I'm speaking of, um, you know, kind of interrupting, think we know the best way, wanting things to go on our schedule. And there's a kind of a long list of like, he's like, hey, white people, you need to kind of check your privilege kind of at the door. And it's a really uh, fabulous letter to dive into. There's a lot of articles written about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the top of the thing that comes to my mind, um, thinking about Baha'i, I actually lived in Delhi for a while in India, where there's a big lotus, it's called the Lotus Temple, um, mm -hmm. which is where I first encountered Baha'i. And the, the temples, I think, are all generally architecturally the same, right, that have, they show many different religious symbols and that equality very well. Yeah. Um, They're all nine-sided. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. The number one thing I usually think of, though, is the Baha'is in Iran who are persecuted terribly, mm -hmm. and we have a lot of religious freedom news, so we hear about them. So I wonder, like, what is the American engagement with that community, if anything, or is that something that's discussed? Um, I know, you know, you were saying Baha'is don't get into partisan politics, which is pretty normal for a lot of religious groups, but obviously what the US government does in Iran would really affect those people too. So like one thing that's been really interesting is the Trump administration's major uh, focus on religious freedom. And, you know, Trump wants to attack Iranian assets and Biden wants to reinstate the Iran nuclear deal. Um, is that something that the American Baha'i community closely follows or how do they engage with that international scene of Baha'is to have less religious freedom abroad? Yeah, that's um, a great question. So Baha'is are greatly persecuted uh, in their homeland of Iran. Um, even now, they can just be locked up for no good reason. Um, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, have died over the history of the Baha'i faith in Iran because it is heresy to essentially start a new religion after Islam, essentially. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's the bottom line. Um, it's especially heretical, yes, because it does have its roots in Islam. Um, and, you know, Muslims are not as upset at Mormons, let's say. But it's the Baha'i faith is not an offshoot of Islam it, in the same way that Christianity came out of Judaism and in some ways reformed Judaism. Um, that's what the Baha'i faith seeks to do. But yes, that's especially... Uh, um, bad for the for the Muslims. And, you know, Iran is a theocracy. Um, and this is one of the ways in which partisanship is really damaging, because sometimes I feel like the political left is way too easy on Iran, like, oh, Iran wants peace, and let's have a nuclear deal that they're obviously cheating on, and just be really allowing of them. And even though their human rights violations are just grotesque. But because it's kind of the right wing is anti-Iran, then the political left can't also be anti-Iran. It needs to be like pro-Iran because we have to just take, even though human rights are terrible, we have to take the opposite tack that the Republicans are taking. This is the same in China, et cetera. So what do Baha'is do? You know, we, we try and get the message out that the Baha'is are being persecuted there for no reason other than their beliefs. They're not allowed to go to university, for instance. They're not allowed to get married. Um, they're not allowed to be buried in Baha'i cemeteries. There's these really 
gross and cunning and despicable human rights violations happening. And we would love to see reform in Iran. You know, we'd love to see it be actually democratic and not a theocracy. And um, But we try and just stay out of all the governmental systems. So, Well, uh, what's it like for you to have this less than very much less than mainstream faith as a Hollywood actor? Like, do people think it's cool or just like you're a little weird? <laughs> weird. Definitely weird. Yeah, there's uh, fortunately, you know, people have been pretty accepting. Um, I think for a lot of people, they're like, whoa, what the hell is this guy talking about? Like the guy who played Dwight and he's funny and he's weird and does goofy movies and stuff on talk shows. And that guy's a he's talking about God all the time. It's not quite that out there. It's not quite that out there. There's there's no. Yeah, and there's no secrets in the Baha'i faith. Like, it's all there. You don't have to go through courses or behind closed doors to find out, like, what's really going on. It's all – and it's not – and we are not. We don't ask for your money either. It's, it's free, so – like Buddhism. So – but, yeah, people think it's weird. They don't know really what to make of me as a, um, as a uh, comedic celebrity especially who's talking about his faith. Um, and um, – so that's challenging, but this is who I am. I like to make comedy. I like to play characters and be an actor. I like to create content. And and I love talking about like conversations that we've just had about spirituality and the Baha'i faith and God and the meaning of life. And um, that's just uh, who I am. We have this podcast called Metaphysical Milkshake with Reza Aslan, who's a great you know theologian and speaker and rabble rouser. And um, not a Baha'i, but a Muslim background. And um, this, we do the same thing that we've just been doing for the last uh, 45 minutes, you know, having um, conversations about life's biggest questions. So it's who I am. People think I'm weird. That's okay. They've thought I've weird my whole life. They thought I was weird when I was playing Dungeons and Dragons and chess in high school. And now they think I'm weird talking about the Baha'i faith. So whatever. Fine, people. I'm weird. Okay. Live with it. I love these topics and I love diving into them. I'm, I'll, I'll never give up acting. I just did this new show on Amazon. I'm producing a new show on Netflix. I'm, you know, I'm creating scripted comedy podcasts and, you know, going to go shoot another couple of shows and movies and stuff like that. So I'll always keep working as an actor and I love doing it. But yeah, this is my, it's kind of more than my hobby. It's like I, I love I love conversations about spirituality because I feel, I feel very strongly that so many of the solutions of what we need in the world can be found in spirituality, that there are spiritual tools and spiritual solutions to making the world a better place that can be found in all of the world's religions. And people need to turn more toward spirituality to um, help heal the world, heal themselves. You know, the mental health crisis is off the charts with young people. Um, the disunity and division in the world is off the charts, and we need to turn more and more towards a spiritual balm uh, to heal us all. Religion has unfortunately been a cause of great disunity, but it doesn't have to be. So, Yeah, we're optimistic. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderful podcast, and um, I wish you... Wish you the very best with all of it. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much. 
This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Religion Unplugged Managing Editor Megan Clark, Religion Unplugged intern Maddie Townsend, and edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of the Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage, or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.